Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions, wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Tolberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together we can help make our world at least a little bit better. 2020 and 2021 sometimes remind me of those wonderful opening words of the tale of two cities, the best of times and the worst of times, the age of wisdom and of foolishness. On the one hand, we have absolutely amazing technological resources, unparalleled wealth, and more or less peace. On the other, we have climate change, excessive economic inequality, and the erosion of democracy. All of it complicated by a pandemic that is the worst we've seen in a century and is still lingering. My guests today are change agents. They both are trying to make the world the kind of place it could and should be. Vidya Ramalingam is a recognized expert on the use of technology to disrupt violent extremism online. Sarah Duro focuses on mobilizing citizens online to help them achieve policies they care about. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. With apologies to Dickens, I'd like to start our conversation with a very simple question. Do you think these are the best or the worst of times? Are we on the cusp of something wonderful for humanity or are we caught in a vicious downward spiral that's gonna end badly? Impossible question. Sarah, why don't you start? What do you think? I like to use this word of crisis unity, you know, like this moment where you are in the biggest crisis is also the moment where you have the biggest opportunity for change. And even though I'm quite worried about uh, the path that our world is taking, I also see there are greater forces that want to use that moment to change things for good. So I might say that, yes, things look dark at some at times uh, in the past months. They still look dark today, but I have very, very big hopes that they're going to get better. Also, maybe because I'm an optimist. And I think when you're doing social change work, you need to be an optimist. Vidya, best or worst of times? You know, I, I really follow suit with everything that Sarah said. I think, you know, 2020 and the start of 2021 has really just brought just unprecedented scale of, for me, working in the online space of online harms, where we're seeing a scale of online harms never seen before. But I am hugely optimistic about how technology, not only you know, re recognizing how technology has been used for harm, I'm hugely optimistic about societies, um, the possibilities for society to use technology to really fix a lot of the harms that we're dealing with today. And like Sarah, you know, I. I have to be optimistic in doing work on white supremacy, on hate groups, on the, the most awful things in our society. I have to be optimistic to do that work because I see a bright future ahead of us. We just need to find the way to get there. Well, I started with that question, which I admit is unfair, because I want to understand how you both think about change. How, how do you actually make help people change minds? How do you change society for the better or for worse? I mean, it can work in either direction. You're in the business of better. <laughs> there are people in the business of changing for worse. What is your theory of change? Did you? 
Well, for me, um, all of my work is premised on the belief that change is possible. And that belief isn't just, it's, it's not just, um, you know, a hypothesis around the world. It's, it's genuinely evidence-based. I have spent the last decade working with individuals that were once embedded in hate movements, people who did and perpetrated awful, violent things. And I have seen them come through a journey and do the hard work it takes to pull themselves out of that and even in many cases become peace activists and now use their own um, the hurt that they caused on the world for social good. And when I think back on the, the kind of patterns and the, the stories that I've encountered of people who lead those sorts of movements and who genuinely change, the common thread across every story is human relationships lead to change. So for someone who's leading a hate group, it's often a moment where they experienced empathy or compassion, maybe a, mo a moment with a family member, um, or sometimes with a, a kind of partner or a child or a counselor. Um, sometimes it's even a moment with a stranger who they thought was the enemy, who then showed them compassion and empathy. But regardless of the story, the common thread is human relationships. And so, you know, my belief in the theory of change is, you know, if it's human relationships that so often get people into a place where they are perpetrating harm to the world, it is so often going to be human relationships that I know can get people out. And so all of the work I do um, to create change and to pull people out of that dark place is entirely based on helping people connect with the right other humans in their lives uh, or people who aren't yet in their lives who can help them get out. And I, I believe technology can allow us to do that at scale. I want to come to technology in a minute, but I'm curious, Sarah, what you just described is one at a time. It, it's about an individual and changing an individual. You work at scale. You're trying to change societies. Uh, change. I think that's what change.org is about. How do you think about change? How, how do you try to help societies change in positive ways? I think our theory of change is rooted in the same idea that Vidya just explained, is that there, I think, that there are not people who want bad, there are people who are suffering and there are people who are lacking access to different things that can be human relationship, but that can also be a sense of being powerless. The fact that you feel you cannot change your world, that you are discarded, disregarded, um, that you actually don't have any impact around you that can also lead to hate. And I guess that our theory of change at, at change.org is this, if we can really equip people with the tools and the skills and the confidence they need in order to make their direct you know, communities or even the world a better place, we believe that they will all come together. And I personally believe strongly that there are more things that bring people together than tear them apart. They just haven't found that yet. So I guess that our theory is that through activism, through participation, you can realize how much you have in common with people around you that also want to live in peace, in harmony, in serenity with their neighborhood, with people in their country, with people across the globe. You are both practicing technologists. I don't know if you're technical technologists, but you both use technology in ways to achieve what you're trying to do. So let's talk about information technology a little bit. The internet and social media have evolved in ways where excessive outrage is excessively rewarded. Uh, it's not the fault of the technology itself, but it's the fault of how we've allowed it to be developed. It's a microphone and the largest, or it's an amplification, and the louder you are, the more you get heard. That leads to rising anger, more polarization, allows for manipulation of people, of societies, uh, of elections, as we've seen recently. 
Is it more problem than solution? You know, if I if I said earlier that human relationships are so often what get people into a dark place and into a place of hate, but it's also what I believe and and know can can pull people out. But if we think about how the internet has just completely transformed the ways in which humans form relationship, it's it's allowed hate to flourish in entirely new ways. And we've seen you know false rumors spreading person to person on WhatsApp, directly inciting mob violence in places like India. Uh, or hate speech, again, going from one person to another online through those human relationships online and fueling ethnic cleansing in places like Myanmar. And, you know, people who are perpetrating hate online are part of communities. They are part of these networks of strangers in many cases who be no longer become strangers because they're kind of egging them on, they're encouraging them and, and providing that kind of fuel to the, to the fire. And, and so that's how, how hate and, and violent content and disinformation spreads online. So the question for an organization like ours is, can the internet be used to actually foster positive connections and foster the sort of connections which can try and build bridges between people? And you know, my, my belief is that digital, the social media platforms, um, you know, there is a lot of work that needs to be done to clean up the social media platforms for them to be held accountable over the spread of this sort of content. But there's a lot of ways we can also creatively use those platforms to create the kinds of bridges between people that can you know, really reach, reach across that divide and reach to someone's heart, speak to someone's heart who's feeling lonely, isolated, angry, and is maybe lashing out uh, in, in ways over the internet. So I, I do fundamentally believe that those platforms um, create a lot of opportunity for us as society. And that's not to say that the tech companies don't need to be held accountable and take significant action. It's just that we both need that change on the platforms. And then there's a lot that communities and regular people can do to be a part of that change. I want to come back to the tech companies in particular. But to say the obvious, hate isn't new, extremism isn't new. Uh, I was thinking, because you do work with white extremist organizations, um, I was thinking about Hitler and Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf, he had to find a publisher, but he found a publisher and he found an audience and he found a movement and he found a world war. So the question, it may well be that technology allows us to have a faster, more extreme, broader, but it's an old problem with a new accelerant. I, I was uh, I was reading about the yellow papers in the US back in the days, and I think there was not technology, but already at the time, there was a way to share uh, some hateful and you know misleading content even before the internet. I don't think that technology creates those problems. They accelerate them, but they can also accelerate the resolution of the problem. And uh, I guess that what we've seen happening is the acceleration of the spread of hate who was based on political leadership, on political conversation, on groups who had an agenda to spread that hate. So I sometimes feel that we need to attack this from both angles, the, you know, obviously the technology, but also the political angle. And I don't believe that hate, hate would have spread so fast on the internet if it wasn't for some political leaders, some institutional institutions, or some, you know, individual uh, behaviors that have been pushed by people who had already a big audience. So I don't think, you know, it came out of nowhere. And I believe that responsibilities must be held both on the tech side but also on the political side. And that's why I feel that, as Vidya was saying, we can use the, you know, the same medium to solve for the issue that, was, that happened on the internet. And I think that 
one of the way we have to do that is by recreating better de democracy through uh, you know tools on the internet that can allow to have governments that are more accountable political leaders that are also held accountable for their actions, for their behaviors, for the denunciation they might have. So I think that uh, we have, as Vidya said, such a big opportunity to use the scale that technology provides to solve for the issue that have been that have risen. I also think that we haven't been very good like, at planning for that. We should have seen it coming. We should have planned ahead. And I think uh, it's true that tech platforms have been caught into the situation where their business model relied on attention. And when your business model relies on attention, obviously, you're going to increase the, num the number of behavior that are not bringing people together, but that are tearing people apart. But we allowed the internet and social media to be developed as commercial enterprises, which is correct is what you just said. Uh, this wasn't a government-driven process. It wasn't a civil society-driven process. It was a commercial process. And it can't be surprising that the result was a commercial enterprise. But we are where we are. What would you do to change that underlying reality, not just to use the platform video, as you just suggested, to do better things with it, but don't we need to rethink the platform itself? And, and what are your, what, what would you do if you had a magic wand, how would you change it? Could you? Well, I, I, I think, yeah, I agree with everything Sarah said about the, the kind of commercial underpinnings of how of how technology, how social media platforms were developed, and that that has really, um, you know, created the environment for a lot of the problems that we're seeing today. Now, it's also affected the solutions, and I've seen that, you know, specifically as someone who works on far right extremism online. Um, you know, it, it often takes tragedy for the tech sector to even be compelled to act. In, in the U.S., we saw this after Charlottesville um, back in 2017. Some services like GoDaddy and OkCupid removed uh, white supremacists from their platforms. We saw this after the Christchurch attack. And then again, after January 6th, after the insurrection at the Capitol, um, you know, we saw a, another major response from big tech. And that's certainly remarkable and important, but it's all, it, you know, that all came at the 11th hour. Um, you know, and Sarah mentioned this too, it's too, some of this is too late. Um, we should have seen this coming. Um, now, years ago, when I think about the conversations I had inside some of the tech companies, um, you know, I, I remember sitting in rooms with decision makers at the tech companies, and when I would offer them evidence about the scale of, of hate on their platforms, I remember being told that they wouldn't take action. Um, I remember being told, you know, these groups are not on the government terrorist, uh, you know, the designated terrorist list. Um, I was told at the time, it's too political. And at the time, I was asking them to take action against the KKK. I think there's little argument there that um, you know that 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 the KKK that there's any debate any debate about whether the KKK is or should be legitimate. The limitations of those companies was really clear. Uh, you know that unless they were instructed by the U.S. government or unless uh, you know unless there were going to be significant financial repercussions. Um, that they weren't going to take action. And so again, you know, it was those legal or commercial imperatives which have pushed them to act. And I think if I had a magic wand and if I could completely shift some of the, the systems and um, at, at play here, 
I, you know, I would really want the tech sector to stand up and take a stance on all forms of incitement to violence. I would want them to go beyond and not, not wait for governments to designate groups as terrorists in order for them to then act on their platforms. Um, and I would want to see standardized action, you know, basically applying standards evenly across the board. We saw platforms take significant action against groups like ISIS back in 2015. We saw major deplatforming efforts. We just haven't seen the same efforts taken place uh, taking place with other types of groups inciting violence against other types of communities. And so even the action we saw after January 6th in the United States, the removal of, of, of Donald Trump's accounts, you know, have we seen the same action in countries like Myanmar or in India or in other places where there are there's leadership that are genuinely using social media to incite violence? So I think there's a bit of a reckoning that that needs to happen within the tech sector and, and a bit of leadership that needs to be taken in, in taking a clear stance against violence. You've conflated hate speech and incitement to violence. And if I were a human rights lawyer or if I were a First Amendment lawyer, I'd say they're two very, very different things. And indeed, and this is a big difference between how Europe looks at the problem and how America looks at the problem. Hate speech is protected speech in the United States. Uh, it is not protected speech in, for example, Germany. Uh, and even talking about Donald Trump, when he was banned from social media, the people who immediately stood up and said that's wrong were people like Angela Merkel, who didn't say it was wrong to ban him, it was wrong to have the tech companies ban him. So now we need to talk about the role of government versus the role of private enterprise. Do you really want, and it's a question to both of you, tech companies to decide what is legitimate speech online and what is illegitimate speech online? Do you have enough confidence in their worldviews in their sophistication, in their ability to separate business, because they are businesses, from policy. Yeah, I, I, will, I would say that um, you, you point to the problem, which is a huge problem. Do we want private company to regulate speech? Because today, that's the situation we are in. We have most of the speech that is, you know, people's voices that are shared on social media. So do we want those platforms to be the one deciding for what stays on night and what doesn't? And so I guess like the, the, the difficulty is to have the right balance between wanting those platforms to be responsible and to take action against hate and having them becoming the new regulator of speech online. Um, and I guess what we desperately need, uh, and I think it's true in the US, but I also think it's true in EU, is to have a proper judiciary legislative um, uh, system that you know tackles this issue. I, I wish that we had courts in France or in Europe <laughs> who would be equipped and uh, and would have the ability to very quickly assess if any content online can or cannot stay. And I think that's also one of the things that I noticed in France in particular is the lack of uh, understanding from our policymaker how internet, social media, and technology works. Uh, in the last debate we had in France around the hate speech uh, law that was, you know, that was even rejected by our, our constitutional council because it was against free speech, um, there was a lot of conversation from parliament member who wanted the best, you know, they wanted to protect people from hate speech, but they were proposing, for example, to remove any content in 24 hours without the intervention of a judge or without the intervention of any legal uh, external expert to the platform. And I don't think we want that either. We don't want platform to decide in 
24 hours what we can or cannot say. So the challenge is real, and I think it's true. We need institutional and political leadership to solve for that at the European level and at the you know global level. And I guess that um, with the new conversation that are happening right now between the US and the European uh, Commission and the European Parliament on regulation of platforms, we can see something that might be a first step to a solution to that. Um, and I don't know if it's going to end up, you know, to be very fast, to be put in place very fast. But I guess that's one of the emergency I see in Europe to avoid the rise of, of hate and to, to, to make sure that it doesn't have political consequences just like it had in other countries. Vidya, you've worked, as you said, directly with the tech companies, and you've talked to tech company leaders about this problem. Do you have more confidence than perhaps I have in their ability to make these decisions? I, I had written down the, the question that you asked, Alan. You know, do, do we think that, that they should take a stance on these issues, and do we have confidence that they can take a stance on these issues and do it well? Um, you know, the answer to your first question is yes, I think they should take a stance on these issues. Do I have confidence in their ability to do it in a way that is, um, that is uh, you know, meaningful, evenly applied, and, and genuinely will have the impact that is, is required across countries? Um, no, I don't, I don't have full confidence, um, and my, my confidence uh, wavers for many reasons. Um, but I, I agree with all points that Sarah raised around, around um, you know, having, building the right system for regulation. One of my major concerns is, um, you know, really ensuring that we have a system for regulation which allows for accountability across the globe um, and really thinking beyond Europe and the United States here, but thinking about how the tech companies um, are responsive in, in contexts like Myanmar, in Sri Lanka, in India, uh, in countries which oftentimes we're not talking about when we're thinking about uh, tech regulation in European and, and North American contexts. So that's where, um, you know, I'm not going to be able to, to provide a solution on this on this call, but where, where I think some of the the tricky, the tricky uh, challenges lie ahead on, on the road ahead for this. Oh, it's beyond tricky because very quickly you're at the geopolitical level and you have, on the one hand, a China which has a dramatically different view as to how these technologies should be used, should be controlled, and the U.S. which talks a better game than perhaps it executes, uh, never mind Europe which has yet a different view and, and, and so forth. In, indeed, I think I would argue we're instead of going towards global solutions, we're headed towards national solutions, where we're seeing the breakup of the World Wide Web as a sort of single place that maybe was amenable to accountable regulation into a whole series of little pieces that will be will be very frustrating. But let me talk about let me ask rather about accountability because Sarah, you already used the word a couple of times. And, and democracy, and you both talked about leadership. And I think all of us would probably argue that democracy, political leadership, and accountability haven't had their best moments recently. How do we make political leaders more accountable? How do we make democracy more responsive? Um, 
I might be a bit direct, but I, I think we need to change political leaders. <laughs> Uh, and I don't mean, you know, just, you know, to, to call for every leaders to be removed from office. I'm just saying that we need to start a path of renewing the type of people we see in offices across the globe for many different reasons, not only, you know, for better accountability, but also for better representation of who are the people living in our democracies today. And I think we've had a huge moment of reckoning of what's happening in leadership in every places of power in the world, thanks to the movement uh, that happened, that's, you know, sparkled in the US around Black Lives Matter. But it's not only about race, it's about gender, it's about the type of people who are never given a space or place, sorry, at the table. So I think that for me, accountability will come first with the renewed political leaders, but also because those leaders, my hope is that they will come from sphere of activism, of social entreprise, of um, social good innovators who have in their DNA the idea of participation, listening to people and what they believe in, associating people with decisions and trusting their ability to make the best choices. And for me, accountability comes when also there is shared trust. You know, when leaders trust in the people they are supposed to represent and when the people they are supposed to represent trust in them. So I might be not as optimistic <laughs> on that one, but I think that uh, we really do need a change of political leadership in many places of the world for this revolution to happen. And, uh, and I think that's coming. And I think that's a beautiful thing to see everywhere in Europe, but also in the US. Uh, I think we have already good examples of people we can look up to. Well, let me push back on that, because as an American, I was just presented last November with the choice between a very old uh, Democratic politician and a very old Republican politician. Arguably, neither of them reflect the future. They both reflect different kinds of past. In France, you're about to have another election, it looks like, between Mr. Macron and, and, and Mrs. Le Pen, um, which sounds to me like the old news, not the new news. Um, so renewal is a great concept. Is it compatible with democracy? What I mean is that, first of all, change is a process. So I think we need also, if we want things to happen smoothly, we need a process. So that's why I'm saying I'm not calling on every leaders of today to be removed from office right away to be replaced by other people. But I think when you look at the new generation of local elected, of activists that maybe they don't yet I have not yet entered political sphere, but they might do that in the in the next uh, months, in the next years. If you see in the U.S., I think uh, Biden's election we know is also uh, the result of a very strong um, uh, mobilization from organizers all across the country that all have, you know, pol potentially political leadership they could offer the country. So I think it's going to be a process. And I, I go back to our conversation at the beginning about crisis and opportunity. And I think that in any crisis we're going to face politically in the next year, we have the new you know, the new generation of people who are ready to take on the challenge after we have passed this difficult moment. So I, again, like I'm a little bit uh, optimistic that this is coming in, in a few months, in a few years, and it's going to happen. Could you? I, if, on nearly any question, if you ask me if I'm optimistic, I will probably be, I will probably err on the side of optimism. And that's largely because, um, you know, I, I think, I think people who are working for social change, you just have, you have to, otherwise the work becomes impossible to do. Right. And, 
um, you know, the point that Sarah was making about representation is what really um, hits home strongly for me. It's something I think a lot about sitting, um, you know, with my work sitting at the intersection between security, tech, and data analytics. Those are three industries or fields where representation of women, where representation of people of color, um, representation of lots of different communities are, are, are missing. And, and those are the industries that are making decisions which impact all of our lives and disproportionately impact the lives of women and people of color. Um, uh, you know, missing those voices at the table is it's palpable. You feel it when you're in the room and when you're one of the few um, vo of those voices at the table, and you feel the impacts of it when you're, um, you know, even if you're not at the table. So I, yeah, I, I, I agree very strongly with the point about representation, and I am optimistic about our, our, um, our future and the possibility that we can get there, but it's going to take really hard work, and it's not something we can take for granted. But I'm going to push back on that because I believe in optimism, but I believe in optimism that's grounded on something. So how would you make democracy more responsive? What would you change so that in my next election, I'm not facing a choice between a 78-year-old and a 75-year-old? Well, be practical. What do you, I'm going to give you that magic wand again if you want. Uh, but what has to change for your optimism to be realized sooner rather than later? It's an impossible question, and I apologize, but... I, I, would, I would yield my time to you on this, Sarah, because I think in your, in your role with change.org, I think this fits neatly within your work. So, uh, yeah, please. <laughs> Lydia, I, I'm, I'm happy to, to start if you want. I would just say that uh, it's not only because I work at change, I think I believe very much that the first thing we need to do is to go back to the basics and it is to go on the ground and meet with people and work with them so they can really use their power, they can really use uh, their voice to participate to the future of their country, of their city, of their you know region. And I think that actually that's one of the key. I would say if we want more democracy, more accountability, we need more participation because yes, really, that's a very big issue we have in France and we have across Europe and also in the US is that very few people still participate in elections because they feel like it's not making a change. It doesn't have an impact. And I think they believe that because they haven't had the experience of, you know, uh, facing a decision maker and telling them this is what we request, this is what we want, this is the strength we have, this is the number of people we are, this is the arguments we are showing you that prove that we are on the right path and you should listen to us. And I think until you haven't had this experience of your power, it is very difficult to project that you could give it to someone for it to change your world. And I guess that's the first thing we need to do is to reinvest uh, participation and to locally go and chat with people and ask them what they want to change in their communities and try and help them to, you know, go back to community organizing, basically, like, like it's been doing a lot of good already and just extend that to much more people. So I guess this is the first step. And I'm sure, Alan, you're going to say, yeah, it's great, but it's going to take time. And I guess that, yes, it's okay to take time as long as in 10 years, we're going to have a democracy that works better because it's rooted in, in the majority of, of people's participation. Now, I'm actually going to say something different. Uh, I did a podcast recently with former Congressman Gephardt, who had been a Democratic Party leader for many years. And he pointed out that one of the positive results of Donald Trump's presidency 
is we just had an election which had the highest turnout percentage-wise since 1900. That in fact, 75 million people voted for Trump and whatever the number finally was, 80 million people voted for uh, now President Biden. So participation went way, way up. And, and that's actually the problem in a sense for your argument. What if the people that start participating who have been left out don't agree with you? Uh, show up and vote for Trump, not for Biden. So I, I might, I, I'm going to speak about this maybe from a, a more um, individualized perspective than Sarah will, um, because because my work's not necessarily focused on uh, on kind of democratization and on on change at a societal level. I'm really looking at uh, at at taking individuals who are pushing for harm within society and changing their paths. And so for me, you know, I. For me, it's not my role to be the thought police and tell people what they should think. My role is to take people who uh, are, are on the path where their ideology is leading them to a place where they believe that um, that certain communities should be, you know, dehumanized, where the power and the power structures in society should be um, readjusted in ways that are anti-democratic. Um, and so, for me, for me, the, the the kind of critical boundary there is around making distinctions between people who are genuinely creating harm in society and legitimate social grievances that we need to address directly. Now, you know, we in, in conversations about the spread of populism in, in European society and, and populism even here in, in, in North America, um, and I'm specifically talking about you know radical right-wing populism in, in particular, um, there are some legitimate social grievances which have underpinned the growth of those sorts of movements in, in Europe and in, in the US. And I think we do need to ask ourselves some tough questions about how we get at the root of those questions, how we actually address those questions for those communities such that those individuals are not uh, compelled to follow individuals who give them simplistic solutions, which won't actually ever solve their problems, but are simply throwing the blame and, and scapegoating the other communities for their problems. Um, so for me, the distinction is you know, between legitimate grievance and then those communities that are genuinely at risk of perpetrating harm. And for those communities, they'll require a different response from those that have legitimate grievances. Um, but, but Sarah, also, you know, your work looks at this at a bit more of a macro level than mine does. So I would, I would hand back to you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a very legitimate question to ask, and um, I think that it has. We have proven in the past that uh, if we don't uh, interact with the, uh, the, all the groups, including the one we think would disagree with us, we would anyway rise the number of people who would vote for a more extremist group or extreme extreme view. I would say. Um, one thing that we've noticed in France, especially with the Yellow Vest movement, uh, was that it was depicted as, you know, this uh, very extreme, very racist, very uh, uh, right wing, if I, I might say, a group. And, and when you actually talk with people, it's because they, the only people who have given them a political solution to their problems were people from the extreme right. And the question for me, that's why it's not only about how do we give people more tools to participate, is how do political parties, especially the ones that believe in progress and the fact that people have you know, more things to do together and then stuff to fight about, can really reinvest. Uh, in helping those groups achieve changes and, you know, address, as you were saying, Vidya, the real grievances, which are employment, precarity, climate, but also the questions about equality. And there's room, there's like so much room for political groups to invest there and to go and talk with those people. They just need to review completely the way they 
they work uh, and the way they, they do politics. I really think that's one of the big change that needs to be done. That's not of the responsibility of change.org as uh, per se, but I think that's something, at least in France, I would love to see happening. And I have, again, great hope because uh, there's a real movement. You're talking about how the election would be between Emmanuel Macron uh, and Marine Le Pen, but I think there's still a year to go and there's so much evidences of groups on the ground who are starting to build alliances because they realize, you know, the different uh, groups from the left realize that they have much more in common and that they could go uh, and meet those people they're supposed to serve and they're supposed to help. So I think it's there's really a political response from the progressive side of, of the spectrum that needs to happen right now because as I agree that if we only give the tools and we don't think about this political response, we could have the opposite effect. Uh, so again, there's accountability that's needed from uh, the political sphere, just like there needs to be accountability from the tech uh, platforms, as well as accountability from people who need to give access to more tools for better public participation. I think that's a wonderful way to end this conversation, because I think it does come down to accountability. And we're, we need to encourage, even more than encourage, to demand accountability. Uh, not just from our leaders, but from everyone. And if we could do that, then some of what you're both trying to do will happen sooner. It's not that it won't happen, it'll happen sooner. So thank you very much, Vidya and Sarah, for, for both for what you're doing, because it's necessary, uh, but for also spending this, this time with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Now it's your turn. Tell us what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergprize.org. Thanks again, and most importantly, don't forget to nominate a leader whose work deserves to be recognised and imitated. This podcast brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Miarkos Foundation.